we are going to take a look at Hebrews 7 tonight, so let me invite you to turn there. Hebrews 7, we'll begin in just a little bit in verse 1. Father, we are grateful to you tonight that we can come together as your children and lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus, forget about ourselves and our troubles for a moment and look unto him who holds the whole world in his hands, who laid down his life for us. We do thank you, God, that we can do this together. And we thank you, God, that we can do this tonight with Alan, who is on his way away from us, and with Carol Jean, who is now back with us. And God, we thank you that you have created here such a family that people are glad to be back with us. Thank you for her and for how you've worked in her life. God, we do now want to lay our crowns at Jesus' feet. We want to lay our hearts at His feet. We want to learn about Him and hear of Him and from Him. And we want to give our praise to Him. So we pray that You'd speak to us now from Hebrews 7. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Three times... Now, in the course of the last two chapters of Hebrews, our author um, has dropped a strange name into the discussion, namely the name Melchizedek. Three times in verses uh, 5, chapter 6, chapter 5, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 5, verse 10, and chapter 6, verse 20. Three times our author has referred to Jesus as having become a priest according to the order of of Melchizedek. It's an odd reference uh, in that many modern readers may have no idea whom our author is speaking about. And it's at least possible, maybe probable, that some of the ancient readers of Hebrews, the original readers, were equally in the dark because uh, the name Melchizedek is one that is not very prominent in the Scriptures. The name may not ring an immediate bell even to some people who consider themselves fairly seasoned readers of the Old Testament. Melchizedek, we say to ourselves. Where do I know that from? Do I know that name? So if this is your first time ever really looking closely at the book of Hebrews, or maybe if it's your eighth or tenth time looking closely at the book of Hebrews, you may be asking yourself as we get to chapter 7, and as we've heard this name three times already, who was Melchizedek? And why is he so important? These are important questions to answer if you want to continue on understanding Hebrews, because as we're about to discover, our author spends almost an entire chapter, chapter 7 here, talking about this obscure Old Testament character named Melchizedek. So who was Melchizedek and why is he important enough that the author would give almost a whole chapter to him? Who was he and why is he important? Those are the two questions we're going to begin with tonight just to get us understanding what Hebrews 7 is all about. So who was Melchizedek? This man whom is mentioned three times already and is going to be mentioned again and again here in chapter 7 Who is he? Well, his only Old Testament cameo basically consists of three or four verses in the book of Genesis, namely Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis 14, Abraham had 
gathered to himself a, a sort of militia. He had gone to make war against five local kings, men who were kings of city-states in the ancient Near East. Uh, he's making war against them because they had overrun the city of Sodom before God overran it. These kings overran it. And the reason Abraham is drawn into the fight is because Abraham's nephew Lot was taken captive by these kings. And so in order to defend his nephew Lot, Abraham goes and he gathers some troops and he goes and fights against these five local kings and he defeats them. He rescues Lot And then on his way back from defeating the kings and rescuing his nephew, we come across this brief and strange little paragraph in Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20. You might keep your finger in Hebrews and just turn to Genesis 14 so you can read along with me. Genesis 14, 17. This is again speaking of Abram. Then after his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He, Abram, gave him Melchizedek a tenth of all. That's it. That's where Melchizedek begins and ends in his appearance in the Old Testament. He shows up and meets Abraham along the road as Abraham is heading back home. He prays for Abraham, pronounces a blessing on him. Abraham pays him tithes and then he disappears from the pages of Genesis. What we learn about Melchizedek is very limited. We learn that like the the men that Abraham had just defeated, he is a local king, king of Salem, which is probably a veiled reference to Jerusalem. So before Jerusalem belonged to Israel, Jerusalem was just a regular city there in Canaan, and Melchizedek was king of that city. But unlike the other kings, the kings that Abraham fought against, the other kings in the local region, Melchizedek was apparently a worshiper of the one true God. He was, in fact, it says, a priest of the one true God, of the Most High God. And so great must his reputation have been, so pleased was Abraham with the blessings that Melchizedek pronounced on him, that Abraham paid him a tithe of all his possessions, a tenth of everything that he had he gave to Melchizedek. And that's all we learn about Melchizedek in the Old Testament. So we come to Hebrews 7 and we're still saying to ourselves, really, who is this fellow and why is he so prominent in the book of Hebrews? He's given much more time here than he is during his actual lifetime in Genesis 14. So we come to Hebrews 7 and we read verses 1 through 3. And before explaining why any of this is important, the author of Hebrews gives us a basic recap of the facts that we just read in Genesis 14. But he adds a few observations. Listen to his description of Melchizedek and note the things that the author of Hebrews points out that we didn't notice the first time. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all his spoils, was the king Melchizedek was, first of all, by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, 
which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of Man, he remains a priest perpetually. Now, here in these first two verses, particularly verse 1 and that first half of verse 2, the author of Hebrews is basically giving us all the same information that we found in Genesis 14. He's a king, he's a priest, he's a priest of the Most High God. He blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tenth of all that he owned. But then he goes on and points out a few things that we may not have noticed initially. First, in the second half of verse 2, he points out that Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. Melchi, king, Zedek, righteousness, king of righteousness. That's what his name means. And his city, Salem, means peace. Salem, or we would say it now in Hebrew, Shalom, uh, same word, just with a little bit different pronunciation, means peace. And so he says this king was king of righteousness and he was king of peace. It's almost as if our author wants us already, before we even get there, to begin to smell Jesus and the story of Melchizedek. He's reminding us by pointing out what his name means and pointing out what his city's name means that like so many other Old Testament characters, Melchizedek points us forward to somebody who is greater than himself. He's pointing us forward to Jesus, who's the ultimate king of righteousness and the ultimate king of peace. Jesus is the king of righteousness. He died on the tree in order to demonstrate, Romans 3.25, God's righteousness in order to prove that God does not just wink at sin. He punishes sin, and the cross reminds us of that. Jesus is the king of righteousness. But in dying on the cross and dying underneath God's righteous wrath, Jesus also is the king of peace, because in his death he made peace between God and man. Jesus is, as the psalmist puts it, the person who comes so that righteousness and peace have kissed. Psalm 85:10. In Jesus, righteousness and peace, which seem to be opposed. How can God be righteous and judge sinners and still make peace with sinners? Those things seem opposed. But in Jesus, those two ideas kiss. And Melchizedek's name and Melchizedek's title as king of peace remind us of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is the one who points that out to us. We wouldn't pick up on that, most of us without Hebrews 7. But Arthur also points out something else that we may have overlooked when we read Genesis 14. Namely, that Melchizedek's ancestry, unlike so many other key characters in the Old Testament, Melchizedek's ancestry is left completely unrecorded. Generally, when you're reading the Old Testament, you read about Joshua, son of Nun, or Isaac, son of Abraham, or this, that, or the other person, and all the time is giving their ancestry, where they came from, who their father was. Significantly, when we read about Melchizedek in Genesis 14, we don't get any of that. We just read Melchizedek, king of Salem, came out to meet him. And so we read here in Hebrews 7.3 that Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. I don't think the author means that Melchizedek literally had no father or mother or that he literally existed without a beginning or an end. Those things can only be said of God. Rather, 
it seems to me that what the author is doing here in Hebrews 7.3 is pointing out the oddity that Melchizedek's pedigree, unlike so many other characters in the Old Testament and particularly in Genesis, Melchizedek's pedigree is left completely unstated by God as he records the story for us. And apparently, the author of Hebrews believed that that was significant. He thought it was significant that God didn't say Melchizedek, son of X, Y, or Z. We'll come back in a moment and talk about why he thought that was significant. But for now, just note that it is significant that Melchizedek's ancestry is not recorded in Genesis. Before we go on, let me summarize what we know about Melchizedek. This first question, who is Melchizedek? Who was he? Well, he was an Old Testament king, king of Salem, which was probably Jerusalem. He was a worshiper of the one true God. He was significantly a priest of the one true God, both a king and a priest. His name means king of righteousness. His title means king of peace which is meant to make us think of Jesus, who's the ultimate king of righteousness and king of peace. And both unusually and apparently significantly, God chose not to tell us anything about his ancestry or his place of origin. That's what we know. Now, we could learn all those things, and Melchizedek could give us an interesting story to think about. But really, when you read about him, you find how often he's mentioned in Hebrews and how little he's mentioned in the rest of the Bible the, the question that is being begged is, so what? So you have a king in the Old Testament who is also a priest who worshiped the one true God. His name means king of righteousness and king of peace. So what? Which brings me to our second important question, and that is, why is Melchizedek important? Why is he important? Why does the author give almost a whole chapter to him? Well, he knows he's important at least because his name and his title remind us of Jesus. We saw that. But why does he warrant half of a chapter, almost a whole chapter here in the middle of Hebrews, which is a book about Jesus, not Melchizedek? Well, when you read verses 4 through 10, you begin to learn why he is important in the story of the Bible. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descendants from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Why is Melchizedek so important? In a word, because he proves that one need not be a Levite in order to be priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek demonstrates that it is possible for God, contrary to the norm of the Old Testament, to appoint a priest who is not a Levite and not of the family of Aaron. That's what he's telling us here in verses 4 through 10. God had declared in Exodus 28, 1, that the priesthood would be drawn from the tribe of Levi and specifically from the family of Aaron, Moses' brother. But here, the author of Hebrews is reaching even further back than Exodus 28, all the way back into the book of Genesis, 
to prove that God's assignment of the priesthood to the family of Aaron was not an exclusive assignment. In other words, God reserved the right, as he did in Genesis 14, to appoint a priest from any tribe that he wants. So here we have Melchizedek, who was not a Levite. There weren't any Levites yet because Levi hadn't been born yet. And yet in verse 1, he's called priest of the Most High God. And here in verses 4 through 10, you have Melchizedek collecting tithes from Abraham, verse 4, taking upon himself the prerogative of a priest, verse 5. It's the priests who collect tithes in verse 5. And that's what Melchizedek did. He took on the prerogative of a priest, even though verse 6 His genealogy was not traced from them, from the the tribe of Levi. Here you have a man who is not only called a priest, but who is acting like a priest and receiving tithes like a priest, even though he is not from the tribe of Levi. Verse 6. This is why our author believed it was significant that God did not include Melchizedek's genealogy back in Genesis 14. It's as though in leaving out his genealogy, God were saying... A man's ancestry is not what is most important. I will appoint as priest whomever I see fit, whether he is of the tribe of Levi or not, whether his genealogy, verse 6, is traced from them or not, I can appoint him as priest. So what's important then in serving as a priest is not, first of all, a man's lineage, but the approval and assignment of God. And Melchizedek proves that having been a priest of the Most High God and yet not a Levite. But now the question is, why is that important? What difference does that make? Okay, so God can appoint priests from any tribe He wants. They don't have to be Levites. Why does that matter? Well, if you read on, you begin to figure out the answer to that question. Verses 11 through 17. Now, If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, Jesus, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So first he's, he's shown us who Melchizedek was, And then he's gone on to prove to us that Melchizedek was a priest, even though he wasn't a Levite. And now he is answering the question, why is that important? Why does it matter that Melchizedek was a priest, though not a Levite? And the answer there is in verse 14. The reason it's important that Melchizedek was a priest, even though he wasn't from the right family, is because our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning Jesus was from the wrong tribe. If he wanted to be a priest, he was from the wrong tribe, Judah, instead of Levi. And this apparently was creating a difficulty for some of these Hebrew church folks. You can imagine them hearing 
with a little bit of uncomfortability, the author of Hebrews saying things like chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus is the high priest of our confession. You can hear them being uncomfortable with chapter 4, verse 14, where he says, Jesus is a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. You can imagine these people, these good Jewish people, squirming in their seats when someone quotes a verse like 1 Timothy 2, 5, that there's one mediator between God and men, the Lord or the man Jesus Christ. You can almost hear them saying, what about the law of Moses? Moses appointed the tribe of Levi to be the priests, and Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. So yes, we can see that Jesus could be our king because he's from the kingly tribe of Judah. But if we claim that Jesus is the only go-between that we need, aren't we going against the law of Moses? Aren't we going against all that the Old Testament teaches about the priesthood? After all, doesn't the Old Testament teach that the priests have to come from the tribe of Levi? And here is the author of Hebrews telling us that Jesus is our great high priest. Maybe this guy is carrying this Jesus thing a little bit too far. Yes, we know he wants to exalt Jesus, but maybe he's gone overboard a little bit here. Surely we're not supposed to just throw out the priesthood and throw out the Old Testament law and stick Jesus in there. And if we do, what happens to our lovely temple? It seemed that if Jesus is the only priest that we need, that the temple would be obsolete. And good Jews that we are, that would be really hard for us to swallow. Hebrews were having real trouble setting aside their religious rituals, their religious background, their cultural Jewish identity, and relying wholly upon Jesus. And they were having trouble in part because they questioned whether Jesus, who was from the tribe of Judah and not the tribe of Levi, was really qualified to be their priest. Perhaps we still need these priests and these sacrifices because we don't have anything in the Bible about someone from the tribe of Judah ever being the priest between God and man. And our author combats their fears, not just by telling them to get over it and trust Jesus, but by taking them back to Genesis 14 and saying, in essence, your fears are unfounded. Melchizedek was very clearly priest of the Most High God, and he was not a Levite. And so he proves that God can appoint whomever he likes as our priest. And then in verse 17, he goes on and refers them to the only other place in the Bible where Melchizedek is mentioned, namely Psalm 110, verse 4. That's what he's quoting there. And he points out that Psalm 110 prophesies that another priest will someday arise, not according to the tribe of Levi, but according to the order of Melchizedek. He's saying even the psalmist told us that there was going to be a different kind of a priest come along. And then the rest of this chapter is his explanation of how Jesus is quite obviously that great final priest, the only go-between that we need. So the point here is Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, was from the wrong tribe, and yet God declared him a priest. And if he was from the wrong tribe and could be our priest, then Jesus, who was from, quote, the wrong tribe, could also be not only the king from the tribe of Judah, but the priest as well, the go-between between God and man. In just a few moments, we're going to come back to these last 11 verses of Hebrews 7 and look at what he says about Jesus as our priest. But before we do, I want to draw just a few practical lessons out of this 
story of Melchizedek and the way that it's presented here in Hebrews 7. In other words, what can we learn before we even continue thinking about Jesus as our priest? One thing we can learn is the importance of knowing the Scriptures. The importance of knowing the Scriptures. This lesson is seen a couple different ways here. First, the Hebrews were all tied up in knots here in this chapter because they weren't as familiar with their Bibles as they should have been. They were apparently all worked up because they kept hearing Jesus being called the high priest and they knew he wasn't a Levite and therefore in their minds he had no right to be the only mediator between God and man. They still needed these other priests. But had they known Genesis 14, had they paid close attention to the scriptures, they would have not been so worked up and they would have not been so confused. They would have realized that it is very possible for God to appoint a priest who's not from the tribe of Levi, and they would have much more readily accepted Jesus as the only priest whom they would need. But they foundered and floundered because they didn't know their Bibles. And throughout the centuries, really, Jewish people have perished in their sins because they don't know their Bibles. They haven't paid close enough attention to all sorts of things that the Old Testament says. And thus they are left bewildered and believing that this Jesus can't possibly be the one that everyone has been waiting for. Because they don't know their Bibles. I talked to a Jewish fellow, a nice fellow, last summer. And spoke about Jesus as the Old Testament Messiah. And I said... Have you ever considered Isaiah 53, this famous passage about the suffering servant? And he said, I don't know if I've ever read that. I read it to him. He never read it before. These people apparently had never looked closely at Genesis 14. And let me say to you that similar ignorance, similar ignorance on your part can leave you just like so many of these Hebrew people with a woefully inadequate understanding of Jesus and leave you without real faith in him altogether. If you don't know what the Bible says about him, it's important. We also see the importance of knowing our Bibles in the way that the author of Hebrews sought to win over his audience. Remember, they're worried that perhaps after all, it was unbiblical and unJewish to call Jesus their high priest. And I find it significant that our author, the author of Hebrews, in seeking to win them over to his position, didn't say to them, don't worry about this whole Levite thing. It's obvious enough, isn't it, that Jesus came and gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. So just accept that that's what a priest does and Jesus is our priest and don't worry about Exodus 28 and all this Levi stuff. But that's not what he did. Instead, he went back into the Old Testament He did his research and he gave them a clear reason why it is not unbiblical to consider Jesus our high priest. He went back to the scriptures and showed them from the scriptures why Jesus is the priest. And his diligence reminds me of how important it is that we be diligent in the scriptures. That we take the time to really dig in and answer people's objections from the Bible. That we labor to give solid biblical answers for why we believe what we believe. That we... 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Are you prepared to do that? Can you give people real biblical answers for why you believe what you believe? If not, then I hope the author of Hebrews and his 
carrying us back into this strange and obscure place in Genesis 14 is a challenge to you. That You need to know your Bible so that you can defend the faith. That's one practical lesson. Know the Scriptures. You'll avoid tangled up knots and confusion and you will be able to defend your faith. Second practical application is the danger of ritual and tradition. The danger of ritual and tradition. The Hebrews almost missed out on Jesus because, yes, they had a legitimate theological question. But when you read the entire book of Hebrews, you discover that part of their reticence about putting Jesus in the first place wasn't just based on theological questions. A lot of it was simply based on tradition. When you read Hebrews, you find that they weren't quite ready to give up their temple rituals and their veneration of the angels and their veneration of Moses and the trappings of the priesthood. And they almost missed Jesus. Perhaps some of them did miss Jesus as the author warns them in chapter 6. And the reason why they missed him, many of them, is because their religious traditions were far too important to them. Now, can that be true of us in the 21st century? You better believe it can be true. Seven or eight years ago, I was talking to a friend who had just recently left attending his Bible-believing church and started going to another congregation. And as we talked about uh, the new congregation that he was attending, he point-blank said, I know that the pastor of this new congregation doesn't really believe the Bible is really true. So we discussed that, and finally the question came, well, what... Why are you going to that church? Why did you leave your other church and you're going to this other church? And his answer was, in so many words, I like their stained glass windows. He was all about tradition and liturgy and form. So much so that he was willing to go somewhere where he knew he wasn't going to hear the Bible preached faithfully because he would rather have robes and bells and smells than he would have Jesus. On the other end of the spectrum, people choose churches all the time because the music is cool or because, quote, there are a lot of people my age there or because they have great stuff for the kids, whatever it may be. Those things, though modern, are really a form of tradition. Tradition is simply the way I like to do church. So for some of us, it's a cool, hip tradition. For some of us, it's an old-fashioned tradition. For some of us, it's a liturgical tradition, maybe. But tradition is simply the way I like it. It's very easy, isn't it, to choose a church based on what feels good to us, what makes us comfortable. Maybe to choose a whole belief system based on what makes us comfortable and not what's true. And we need to be careful about that. I realize I'm speaking to a lot of people who are uh, in a church that uh, doesn't have some of those trappings, perhaps. But let me bring it a little bit closer to home by saying that it's possible for you to be hung up on tradition and ritual and to miss out on Jesus even here. It's possible that some of you come here because this is your tradition. Namely, this is the way you like to do church. We sing the songs that you know. We do things the way that you have always done them or the way that you like them done. And so you come here because this is an easy place for you to come. I try my best to make it not so, preach long and say mean things sometimes. Um, But some of you may come here just because it's easy, and that's dangerous. You miss Jesus altogether if 
you go to church simply because it's easy. So watch out if church is comfortable for you. Watch out too if our particular little Baptist comfort zone causes your eyes to be closed to the wider workings of God. Did you know there are real Christians who sprinkle their children? I mean, really, there are. Not everybody thinks like us. They, they have the right to be incorrect. So do we about certain things. But it's easy to just put our blinders on and think that we're the only ones. I thought about it on Sunday because on Sunday, I don't know if any of you uh, remember this, but I encourage you to take those St. Patrick's tracks and go to your local Irish pub and hang them up in the bathroom. I wondered if that rubbed anybody the wrong way. The pastor told us to go to the pub. Did I hear that right? If that rubs you the wrong way, it could be that your religious traditions and comfort zones are keeping you from being and doing the kinds of things that Jesus did. Tradition and ritual are not evil in and of themselves, but they have a peculiar way of obscuring Jesus, of keeping us back from him, of blinding us to the things that are most important. The Hebrews missed out, some of them, on Jesus because they were so worried about their blue and white robes and their priests and their temple furnishings. The third practical thing I would say to you, the third practical thing I would point out to you is the summing up of all things in Jesus. This story of Melchizedek reminds us that all things are summed up in Jesus, that the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. And we know that's true. We say that often. But the story of Melchizedek paints it, I think, in very bright colors. Think it out with me. If we were to read the Bible without constantly having our eyes trained looking for Jesus, the story of Melchizedek would seem absolutely pointless. Because here he is, he shows up for really three verses in Genesis 14. He speaks two sentences to Abraham, he takes Abraham's money, and then he totally disappears from the landscape of the Bible. And on top of that, the brief encounter seems to have left no lasting impression on Abram or his family. Abram never brings up Melchizedek again. He never speaks of him in conversation. He never seems to reflect on this incident. It seems to happen in three verses and then disappear and have no point to it. So why did these events happen? You read Genesis 14, you go, what does this matter? Why does this matter at all? Why is this even here? Why did this even happen? Well, it seems to me that the only reason why it happened, the only reason why Melchizedek existed, the only reason why this obscure character and story are even brought into the Bible to begin with was to give the author of Hebrews an answer to the question. Is it possible for Jesus to be the priest even though he's not a Levite? It seems to me that God created Melchizedek and stuck him into Abraham's life and stuck his story, his three little verses, into the Bible to give us an answer to an important question about Jesus. In other words, Melchizedek's whole existence can be explained by the need to help us better understand Christ. Way back in Genesis 14, God was orchestrating seemingly random and unimportant events in order to prepare the way for his son, who is our great high priest. And Melchizedek is just the tip of the iceberg, isn't he? Ephesians 1.10 says that God is sovereignly working toward the summing up of all things in Christ. 
The world really is about him. Melchizedek's existence, Abram's existence, the Hebrews' existence, your existence and mine are really all about Jesus. That is why we are here. That is why our little insignificant lives and our three verses worth of life, perhaps, that you feel like you're living are there. God is using the whole world to sum up all things in Jesus. Now, we need to close by looking at the last handful of verses in this chapter. But before we do, let me summarize again the importance of this Melchizedek passage. To put it briefly, Melchizedek was an Old Testament king and priest, a priest of the Most High God, but one whose lineage is never mentioned. And because his lineage is never mentioned, he is proof that priestly lineage is not all important. That God reserves the right to raise up for himself a priest who is not from the line of Aaron. And in proving that, it helps us understand that Jesus can be and is the great final high priest, the only one that we need, the one mediator between God and men. And he's a priest not on the basis of his ancestry, not on the basis, verse 16, of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Jesus is our priest not because of what family he was born into, but because his life is indestructible. He is God's son. And having proven that Jesus then is the rightful high priest, the author concludes by pointing out several ways in which he is not only equal to the priests of the Old Testament, but greater than they are. And I want you to read these last verses with me and then we'll point out just a few ways that Jesus is so great. Hebrews 7:18. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever." Having removed the old priesthood in verse 18, setting aside the former commandment, Jesus offers us a better hope, verse 19. The law, verse 28, appointed men who were weak, but Jesus, who is a better priest, is made perfect forever. He's better than those Old Testament priests, and he is so in four ways, briefly. First, he's better in that he has a better appointment, a better appointment. Verses 20 to 22. Whereas the old priests were appointed purely based on the law of physical requirement, verse 16, purely based on their ancestry, 
Jesus has been appointed, verse 21, with an oath. With an oath. God promising in Psalm 110, verse 4, which is quoted here, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever. In other words, under the Old Covenant, any Tom, Dick, or Harry could become a priest so long as he was born in the right family. It didn't matter if he loved God. It didn't matter if he cared about the people. It didn't matter if he was a holy man. He was a priest simply, verse 16, based on the law, physical requirement, because he was from the family of Aaron. But with Jesus, it's not so. Jesus is a better appointment. Jesus has God's own verbal stamp of approval. He has God's oath. He is sworn in with God's own words. Jesus, our priest, has been hand-selected as the favorite of heaven. He's been given a better appointment than the Toms and Dicks and Harrys of the Old Testament who simply had the right last name. Jesus is appointed because He's worthy, not simply because of His last name. At a better appointment. Secondly, He has a longer tenure. Verses 23 to 25. Just read verse 23. The former priests existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Because Jesus continues forever, He is able to intercede for us continuously at the throne of grace. Verse 25. You see that? He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him because He always lives. He's not like the other priests who serve for a few years and then go away and are replaced. His mercies never come to an end. His lips never stop praying for us. His nail-printed hands and feet never cease to be looked upon before the throne of God above who looks on Him and pardons me. His blood is always on the mercy seat before God. Jesus is far greater than any earthly priest because His ministry continues forever, world without end. Thirdly, He's better in that He has a holier life. A holier life, verses 26 and 27. The Old Testament priests, verse 27, had to offer up sacrifices first for His own sins. For His own sins. The Old Testament priests were weak. They were frail. They were sinners just like you and I. Many of them were actually quite wicked. You remember Aaron, who's the prototype, erecting a golden calf and calling it God in Exodus 32. His sons, Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire, who just said, we'll put together a little incense and do what we like at the altar of the Lord in Leviticus 10, and God struck them down. You fast forward to the book of 1 Samuel. You remember Eli the priest who... Samuel kept hearing God in the night and going to Eli. And Eli would say, lay back down. And he'd go back and say, I heard you. And he said, lay back down. And finally Eli got it and said, say to the Lord, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Well, Eli, bumbling as he was in that story, was quite worse than that. He and his sons grew fat on the temple sacrifices. His sons slept with the female temple workers in 1 Samuel 2. And even the priests that were faithful and good, at their best, were men of many failures. But, verse 26, we have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. 
We, unlike the people of Israel, never need to worry that God will reject the intercession of our priest because of some personal defect. We never need to worry whether or not our priest is doing what he's supposed to do. We never need to worry that he's faithfully serving the Lord on our behalf. We never need to worry that his offerings will be rejected because they are unclean. We have a priest who is holy and innocent and undefiled and separated from sinners. And God hears and God accepts his intercession. Chapter 5, verse 7, because of his piety. The priests of the Old Testament were heard because they offered sacrifices for their own sins, but not Jesus. He's heard because of his piety, his holy life. God hears and answers his prayers and his intercession on our behalf. He is holier than the Old Testament priests. Fourthly, and finally, he's better than them in that he offers a better sacrifice. Verse 27, a better sacrifice. The old priests had to come to the temple again and again. They had to come, it says, daily offering sacrifices. Why? Not only because they kept on sinning and had to keep offering sacrifices for themselves, but because their offerings in themselves were inadequate. Chapter 10, verse 11 tells us that the blood of bulls and goats which these priests offered can never take away sins. Can never take away sins. Those those sacrifices were simply shadows. They were symbols. They were copies of the reality that was to come in the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, namely Jesus. So those Old Testament priests stood daily piddling around with shadows and symbols offering the same sacrifices again and again that could never take away sins. But Jesus, chapter 10, verse 12, offered one sacrifice for sins for all time and then sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. Jesus, verse 27, chapter 7, once for all offered the sacrifice that was needed when He offered Himself. Jesus offered a better sacrifice, one that unlike the blood of bulls and goats, was adequate to wash away our sins forever. And Jesus also offered a better sacrifice in that He offered up, verse 27, Himself. He offered up Himself. No one else ever did that for you. No one else ever could. For no one else is holy and innocent and undefiled. No one else is qualified to be a lamb without spot or blemish on your behalf. No one else had blood that was pure enough to sacrifice Himself for you. And no one else ever loved you enough to take all of your guilt upon Himself, to take the hell that you deserve upon Himself. No one loves but Jesus like that. People, yes, have died in war for your freedom. Perhaps a mother would dare to die in childbirth in order to save the life of her child. Perhaps someone would even dare to step in front of a speeding train or car in order to save your life. But no one ever offered to take your guilt. No one ever offered to take your hell. No one ever offered to become sin on your behalf. 2 Corinthians 5. No one else ever offered to drink the full cup of God's wrath for you. And no one else ever will. There's only one priest, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And the challenge of this passage, the challenge of this book, the challenge of our lives is to lay down any vestiges of trust that we have in any other priests and look solely to Him. 
to lay down any leftover reliance on ourselves, on our religion, on our tradition, on whatever it may be for you that you are tempted to try to use as a mediator between you and God. Whatever promises you're tempted to make, whatever do-betters you're tempted to try, whatever religious activities you're tempted to engage in, whatever persons that you may think can stand between you and God, the book of Hebrews is saying lay those things down and look only and always to Jesus who is able, verse 25, to save forever those who draw near to God through Him.